Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. All right, welcome. Uh, we're going to do a slightly different kind of show today than, I mean, if there is such a thing as a show that we would typically do, and there probably isn't. But uh, we're going to tell you about a phenomenon here in Connecticut. It's not restricted to Connecticut, but you're going to be kind of surprised, I think, that it's happening at all in Connecticut. Uh, and it's a difficult phenomenon to describe. Uh, I'll do my best, and then the guests, we have terrific guests here, they'll, they'll do a much better job. But it, it basically involves situations where parents have children with unusually high levels of need in areas ranging from mental health to developmental issues and stuff like that, but ways in which the parents have really had to go and ask for a lot more help that they're getting than they're getting. They ask the state for the help that they need, either delivered in much more volume at home or possibly uh, some kind of residential treatment facility. And somehow or other, when the process is completed, what has happened is that the parents have wound up surrendering their parental rights. Um, and so we're going to try to tell you this story today. It's been already told before by one of our guests, uh, Juliana Schatz-Preston, Ida B. Wells Fellow with Type Investigations, formerly known as the Investigative Fund, and Reveal, the terrific show Reveal. Uh, and she's also an independent filmmaker based in New York. So Re Reveal has already uh, carried a story uh, about this. Uh, and there's a documentary version uh, of by the same title, A Desperate Bargain, that she has produced that's going to be out on Frontline later in April. In studio with me is Bette Gaylor, attorney at Connecticut Legal Services. And then later in the show, you're going to meet some people who have been directly affected by this process, this policy. I almost don't know what to call it because it, it seems to work in such a strange way. So, um, Juliana, uh, I probably didn't do a very good job uh, of summarizing this, but but you can do a better job. As you, as a reporter, discovered the existence of this practice, what was it that you found your that you were that you were discovering? Sure, um, I found that uh, there was just a breakdown in the system that we have currently for mental health care. And um, at the end of the day, uh, parents were facing a critical and desperate choice or bargain, if you will, um, with, uh, with the child welfare system. And uh, that's, that's what led me to this story. Right. So when we talk about um, what the parents are facing, they're often facing a situation that it's untenable and, and maybe a little bit scary. You may have kids who are, are, are inf inflicting physical harm on their parents. Uh, you may have kids who are making threatening statements about other children living in the home. You, you have sort of the kind of situation where you need as a parent to be able to turn somewhere and say, I don't have enough help. What else can you give me? So when they, when they do that, what are they typically asking for? What do they ask the state to do for them? 
Well, I think immediately the the help requested is safety, safety for the child and safety for the family. Um, and often uh, families in crisis are have exhausted all of the options that are available to them. I think the first and foremost uh, biggest point to, 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 to establish is that this is – a shared responsibility uh, where the insurance system does not cover such uh, high-level needs of mental health care for children, um, as well as uh, different uh, agencies and organizations throughout the state and throughout the country, whether that be the school systems or uh, the Department of Developmental Services, um, in addition to the Department of Children and Families. So these families have really gone through each agency um, and and ultimately find themselves likely in the emergency room uh, without any other place to go. And it's generally there that they discover um, this, if you can call it an option, to to engage uh, the Department of Children and Families. Right. And we should say that, and I'll say this more than once over the course of this show, but yeah, some of this is just a resources problem in this. I, I've been a reporter since 1976. In 1976, I remember a horrible crisis here in Connecticut involving one specific kid who had fallen out of the DCYS, uh, that's what it was called at the time, the old DCF, a DCYS pipeline, and a horrible thing had happened. I'm not even going to go through the details. I still remember the kid's name, and everybody said, My God, this is horrible. We've got to have blue ribbon panels and, and multi part journalism things, and we've got to deal with this. And basically, we could have the same conversation. That was 76. It's 2019. We're still basically having the same conversation. What happens here in the state of Connecticut? Are there these eruptions of concern? And probably the last major one involved Adam Lanza. And everybody just says, well, said, says we got to build the system out better so that, you know, we can help more people when they need this kind of help. And then it just kind of doesn't happen. A lot of this, what we're going to talk about is just because the resources are not there. But sometimes they are there. just a difficulty getting them. So, Bet Gaylor, I'm going to turn to you. Um, Once again, this is a very complicated thing to explain to people, and we probably still haven't explained it yet. But somehow or other, these parents who want to take care of their kids and either want to keep their kids in the home with a lot more help than they're getting, or they think their kids need to be maybe be in a 24-hour, some kind of residential uh, program for a while, um, what what they're not interested in doing is surrendering parental rights. But that happens. Why does that happen? Well, it's not so much a surrendering of parental rights, that, and that matters. But what they do lose is their custodial rights. Yeah. The termination of parental rights means that's that's once and for all. Mm-hmm. You have no – it's as if you never had a formal relationship with that child. Um, but relinquishing custodial rights mm-hmm. and giving those rights over to the Department of Children and Families means that they relinquish all control and decision-making power over their child's education, over their child's mental health treatment, where the child lives, what medications, if any, the child needs. And although the DCF is um, points out, oh, you can remain part of the decision-making process, it's uh, that's not how it comes across. And frankly, the, the biggest concern from my eyes, as because it, it's, as you've said, this is, I've been practicing for over 30 years. This was one of the first issues that came up in my early years of practice, and it hasn't changed any. And uh, despite the fact that the legislature took steps in 1997 to say, we're prohibiting this, that you cannot ask 
families to relinquish their custodial rights in exchange for mental treatment, health treatment offered by the Department of Children and Families. And yet, and then in 2001, uh, the DCF issued regulations uh, with a lot of admissions restrictions and admission criteria, and the way those have been applied in, in my view, has always been in an unconstitutional way because all of this has to be viewed in the context of our fundamental right in this country that the, the, we have as citizens and families, we have the right to raise our children as we see fit. And the only time that the state can exercise its awesome power to intrude on that family relationship is when there has been abuse or neglect. And what I can say is these families are – those are not the families we're talking about. Right. That's a great point. I, I, let me just turn to Juliana for a second about that. So the, the uh, operational phrase that keeps coming up is uncared for due to specialized needs, something along those lines. So b basically there's some kind of formal declaration that this child – has been uncared for because of specialized needs. And I think as uh, Beth is suggesting, that there's sort of an irony here. These parents are more eager to care for and, and get care for, get care for their kids than maybe even the average parent. That's exactly right. Um, I think the breakdown happens in the emergency room um, after someone, either, you know, a, a doctor, psychiatrist there or even previously has recommended, let's say, a residential treatment. And then suddenly that child can't find placement, uh, whether that's due to funding or uh, agreement with with the supporting agency. And then suddenly the, that child or that parent is being told the child needs to be discharged. And the parent is rightfully confused and worried and says, no, I can't take my child home. And all of a sudden, that disagreement over what the child needs and um, the decision potentially to leave that child at the emergency room um, triggers involvement with the Department of Children and Families because they, the, the Department of Children and Families will then then views that child as essentially abandoned. Uh, and so they come in and uh, there's a discussion and whether or not uh, the, the neglect petition is filed, what these parents are generally – uh, what they're categorized is is yes again uncared for due to specialized needs that that's sort of the red flag in my reporting as far as wh who is is encountering this sort of situation where they desperately need care but they can't find a way to provide it and yet there's this peculiar way of obtaining it by being going being charged with neglect and so and so yes it is the irony of all ironies to be called uh, or be determined uh, neglectful with this subcategory of uncared for because at the end of the day, all they want to do is provide care for them. Right. Kids. When you learn their stories, uh, you're going to, first of all, see that most of these parents have been willing to attempt something that a lot of us just wouldn't even be willing to try to do in the first place. Uh, and and they have taken that very seriously. So, yes, it's very bizarre. And we should also say that one of the problems uh, here is – uh, it's hard to know how often this happens. Uh, and uh, there's a great piece from 2016 by the late, great Elisa Shetikal, uh, uh documenting this. And I think she said the same thing that you said, Juliana, which is it's hard to get an exact number, like how many times a year does this thing happen? That's exactly right. And um, that that was really the indicator. I mean, initially I did this as a, as a nationwide report, but uh, – 
you know, each state categorizes these things so differently. But in Connecticut, after speaking to dozens of people um, from agencies, attorneys, doctors, parents, across the board, it's it's really this uncared for due to specialized need petition that really is is emblematic of the situation that that that's happening. And in my report, I, I quantified them. This material came from the department, uh, the judicial department, and and from 2011 to 2018, there were uh, over 1,000 uncared for due to specialized needs. All right. So um, I should say that we asked the Department of Children and Families, the people who really know more answers to more questions about this than anybody. We asked them to come on the show today and they are declining to come on the show. I would just like to say that if I were the governor of Connecticut, I would tell all of my commissioners that if the press makes a reasonable request from you for information about how your agency operates, you have to accede to that request. You can show up on the show and tell tell me that there's things that you can't talk about because of client confidentiality or whatever. But this whole idea we're not going on the show doesn't really wash. Anyway, uh, Juliana was lucky enough to talk to somebody from DCF, uh, the deputy commissioner uh, of children and families, uh, Christina Stevens. Uh, so we're going to steal a clip uh, from Reveal. So you can at least hear a little bit about what the official response is about some of these questions. Well, we do have denials. I mean, we don't we obviously have a 95 percent acceptance rate. You know, you have families that initially apply and sometimes withdraw and say, I've I've decided I'm going to move in another direction or the need is not what I thought it was or they've got a different clinician. It may have been a difference of opinion where you have a provider who says, I can deliver specifically what's recommended in the home, in the community. And you may have a family who says, I'm not interested in that. These are complicated issues. um, And they're incredibly hard to do because they are so complicated. So this 95 percent compliance rate uh, comes up a a lot. We got we did get a a written statement from DCF. I I think they mentioned the same thing. So um, that when they say that, what are they talking about? They're, t- they're saying, if I ask, uh, I need some help with my kid, blah, 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 they, they say yes 95% of the time. So why are we having a conversation about this other phenomenon? Well, I presume that she is talking about a 95% acceptance rate into what the DCF calls its voluntary services program, yeah. which uh, was created back in 1997. Uh, regulations didn't come about until 2001 mm-hmm. uh, to implement that statute. But it basically was saying, yeah, we'll offer you services. But And they, the DCF by law is required to provide a continuum of services, mm-hmm. whatever is clinically indicated. But there has been a real push in this state to do everything, uh, p- to put services within the home. Mm-hmm. And for this very high end of small number, relatively speaking, of children who do not function and cannot function in their homes. And the important thing is this is not parents saying, I don't want my kids at home. It's generally parents who have been searching for treatment for their children and they go to medical professionals or you know clinicians, psychotherapists, and those people are recommending, you know, you have to, in order to be successful in this treatment, it can't be done within your home. And a, a, a takeaway here for me is that it's not about the parenting. It's about the 
the high needs of the child. So even DCF might say, well, we're going to place your child, we'll take your child out of your house, but it's going to be into a foster care program, a foster home or a therapeutic group home. And those aren't necessarily what has been recommended for the child. Um, so, so, yeah, so let me just go back to Juliana on this because I, I, once again, it would be so helpful if DCF were here so we could ask them questions. But I'm going to take a guess, uh, Juliana, based on your reporting and other stuff, that if DCF were here, what they would say is, look, sometimes just the way things are, the way bureaucracies work, the way regs and laws exist, we can get federal money if we get this kid in our system in, in a certain way, if this kid's legal status changes, and that's one of the reasons for termination of custodial rights. Or we can we actually can create, you know, eligibility for the delivery of a lot, a bigger fire hose of services if the kid is in a therapeutic foster home as opposed to the kid's actual home. So, you know, we don't love this. But this is the way that we do it because resources are scarce and maybe the thing we really need doesn't even exist because we don't have enough you know, real residential care. I mean, I don't know. I'm putting words in the mouth of a state agency, Juliana, but I'm just sort of guessing because agencies aren't intentionally mean that there's some reason like that. Right. Um, I think what you've mentioned about uh, the accessing of federal funding once a child is in foster care, I don't think that DCF would – would say that, though I do think that's a common sentiment across the board from everybody I've spoken to, not necessarily at DCF. I think that DCF would say fundamentally that residential treatment is not the best option for a child. They believe this very strongly, and um, that's been repeated to me in number a number of interviews. And so they will say that families aren't aware of the community-based resources that exist. Um, that said, um, when I interview doctors, parents, um, trying to access whatever they can, those community resources are not as robust as uh, as the agency is claiming them to be. I think that every parent would keep their child at home if they could. But in certain instances, as Bet had sort of alluded to, um, there are very serious things that need to take place for some of these children. They may include um, a, what's called a med wash or, a, you know, a, a close monitoring of medication. The child may be dangerous. And and these are not – I think everyone agrees that no child should be institutionalized unnecessarily for an extended period of time. But when it is necessary for, let's say, a short period of time to monitor that medication and get that child to baseline. Um, I think I think a lot of providers would agree that that's what's necessary. So I think fundamentally, uh, uh, the DCF would probably just say that residential treatment is not uh, what they believe in, and uh, that was certainly the the belief of the previous commissioner. And it seems that that is now being uh, carried through with with the new commissioner. Um, I think, if I may, just make the point that. Um, in one of the interviews I, I conducted with, uh, I, I'll, I'll spare their name, but uh, they said, you know, what's difficult is that when DCF becomes involved, they are the, the safety net for these children, right? And um, unfortunately, uh, you know, the primary, the primary purpose of the Department of Children and Families is to protect children from child abuse and neglect. Now, many people don't know that they are also the safety net for uh, sort of this children's mental health. And what many people feel is problematic is that when DCF becomes involved, they view things through the lens of their primary focus, which is child abuse and neglect. So uh, DCF may become involved 
you know, at the parents' you know request, and suddenly everything that family is going through is viewed through the lens of the Department of Children and Families, through the lens of child protection. And so one of my interviewees stated very, very eloquently was, well, if you were going through the worst crisis of your life, how well would you present? Mm-hmm. And how, you know, how would your actions be interpreted? Now, I'm not trying to excuse certain, you know, uh, very valid cases of, of, of abuse and neglect that I'm sure certainly exist out there. But a lot of these parents are being scrutinized through that lens. And I think that's where a lot of this, uh, of these problems sort of trip up. I mean, so I know you got something you want to say, but I want to ask you a specific question first. So let's say I'm a parent and uh, I got all kinds of problems with my kid uh, and the kid really is kind of entering a a kind of danger zone uh, and I'm working with a clinician and the clinician says, you know what, we're going to put this kid on a med, but this kid really probably needs to be in a residential uh, setting at least for a while while the med's taking effect and, you know, we got to sort of cool this thing off and blah, 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 blah. And then – um, so why why wouldn't that be the end of, end of it? Why would DCF then have the final word about whether that really happens? Well, it's kind of a tough question to okay. answer. Okay. But but the when you ask when you're asking the DCF for mental health treatment services, yep. uh, you might be excluded altogether. So the admission the DCF. It has admission restrictions so that, for example, if you and, – and they also have admission criteria. Mm-hmm. If you've ever been in out-of-home placement, if you've ever been the subject of an investigation, um, if you're involved with the Child Protective Services already or if your child has had been involved in a delinquency matter, that by definition excludes you. However, the commissioner of DCF does hold – uh, the right to waive any of those restrictions or admission criteria if she chooses. However, um, so there's some kind of internal review process. Th- th- there is, and in fact, if a parent has been denied mental health treatment, mm. they are required. This was one of the litigation cases that legal services did a number of years ago, because. At that time, the DCF was not notifying parents of their right to appeal a denial which is a statutorily created right. Um, so they weren't notifying them in writing of the denial of services and they weren't denying them of their right to appeal that denial. As far as I know, I'm the only one who's ever actually challenged that denial. So, so when, I, when I filed the appeal, uh, the presiding judge said, is she sure she's in the right court? Because I've never seen one of these before. Um, and, and, you know, it's also... Well, uh, you know, um, one of the biggest things that has concerned me from the get-go about the regulations and how they operate is that I see them as the gatekeeper because this is not – this law is within available appropriations. Mm. And that sort of – you know, when when you're a family and you have a doctor saying your child needs this and then you have an agency says, well – we're not going to provide you with that. Mm-hmm. Then you have no place to go. Right. And it's, and you also keep – and another thing that I think people need to keep in mind is that all of these kids are supposed to be going to school. Mm-hmm. And a, a big focus of my practice has always been on the educational component of this. And so it's a huge problem across the state with um, 
truancy, chronic absenteeism, disciplinary problems, because these kids are dysregulated at school as well as at home. And so so the parents are struggling with all of that. Uh, They're worried about the violence in their home. And another real concern is that when that agency, when the DCF and every place else is shutting the door in their faces, these parents can't defend against what you'd call neglect charges Mm -hmm. because you're unable to keep yourself and your other children safe. And one of the biggest concerns of my clients has been how traumatizing it is for their other children without disabilities uh, to to live in a household with a child who might be extremely violent um, and unable to regulate in that setting. Right. So we're going to take a break in just a second. I just want to maybe uh, reframe this for a second. We're going to bring some parents in here, give you some uh, actual experiences with this. But I mean, as I've tried to understand this story better with the help of my excellent producer, Betsy Kaplan, you know, I just keep thinking the same thing, which is we give a lot of lip service to in our society to how much we care about kids. Uh, and then even within that framework, a bunch, how much we care about the most vulnerable kids. And these kids, if they're violent, if, they're, if they create trouble and stuff like that, it's usually because of some horrible thing that happened earlier on. They saw their birth parent murdered. or I mean, it's, it's stuff literally like that. Uh, and so these are the kids who have the greatest needs in a lot of different ways. And we talk a lot about how we're going to, of course, of course that would come first in our society. We, we would build the system that had the carrying capacity to deal with these kinds of kids because nothing's more important than kids and no kid is more important than a kid who has had horrible stuff, uh, scarring stuff happen already and is still you know, trying to get his sailboat up right in the water. Um, but the truth is we don't do it. <laughs> you know, ultimately, we cut budgets. Human services budgets of the state of Connecticut have been cut to the bone, and we all stood around and applauded So, because we want our taxes to go down. I mean, it really isn't a whole lot more complicated than that. Um, I mean, it's a lot more complicated than that. But somehow or other, the root cause of this, like who's driving this, who's creating this problem, kind of we are because we really don't want to pay for the kind of society that we claim to believe in. All right, I'll get off my soapbox. Uh, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. All right. Our show today is about situations in which parents have pressing and sometimes extreme needs for help with their kids. They go to the state. They go to the state agency charged with helping them. They ask for help and they don't get the help that they expect that they're getting. And sometimes almost it seems the price of any help that they get might be relinquishing of control uh, of custodial rights uh, to their children. So uh, we have uh, still with us Beth Gaylor from Connecticut Legal Services, Julia Schatz-Preston, who has done a piece for Reveal called A Desperate Bargain. There's a frontline documentary in the works by the same name, should be out in April. And now in studio with us, uh, two people who have really been through this process. Maureen O'Neill Davis, co-founder of Family Forward Advocacy Connecticut, uh, a legislative advocate for the Attachment and Trauma Network, uh, and the adopted parent of two kinship children, and Susan Russell, a parent of three children she adopted from the state welfare system. So, uh, Susan, I'm going to start with you. Um, Just quickly give us a sense of your story. Tell us uh, uh, about your experience as a mother with, in particular, one uh, son who, who really had some pretty specific issues. Yes. Hi, Colin. Hi. Um, my name is Susan, and I have three adopted children through DCF. Kevin and Rebecca are a sibling set that came to me when they were 
um, seven and five. And I also have a separate child, Mackenzie, who's related to them through adoption. Um, she's not a sibling. Um, Kevin came to me as a very quiet five-year-old. Um, did not really experience much verbal um, from him. He was very quiet. Uh, there were stories of him becoming violent, but I had not seen it. Um, when he was in my home, probably for about three or so months, he just kept his tantrums just be kept becoming greater and greater and greater over time. Um, he has since um, been in in and out of ERs, um, emergency room care settings. We've also um, been a part of DCF's voluntary services, um, received a lot of intensive in-home therapy, probably gone through the program three or four times. Um, and the program was fine while it was in place. And then shortly over time, those those strings are cut um, due to funding or due to the fact that they feel Kevin is stable and they, they need to move on to another child. Um, I had to make a decision back in April, back in August of 2015 to stop the cycle um, because what happens is a child gets put into the emergency room. Recommendations are being made for congregate care. He gets to congregate care. He does really well during congregate care. Then they want to discharge home. And in my experience, the discharge plan um, and his care treatment team was recommending a therapeutic group home be before coming to my home. And in order for me to obtain those services for Kevin, I had to voluntarily give up guardianship um, and decision making in order for Kevin to get those services in which he was entitled to. Um, and the update is that Kevin has been home in my, in my home since back to my home since October. Um, I did receive my rights back in January. Um, and so far, so good. Knock on wood, he has not experienced a crisis situation at all. Um, he has been so far very successful. Let me just ask you a couple of quick questions. Sure. About this. So you did. You did have to give up your rights. Absolutely. You had to sign something mm -hmm. saying, and it was probably, once again, that uncared for yes. phrase. I had to go in front of a judge. Yeah in tears um, to tell them that I needed help, that Kevin was recommended this type of care and that I needed to, he deserved a right to thrive. And, and that, was, this, that was in order to get him into the therapeutic yes. group home. And did yes. anybody explain to you why that, and why can't, why can't he go to the therapeutic group home and you don't have to give up your, your status of Unfortunately, uh, a that was never offered. Um, we're told that this is a service that voluntary services would offer, congregate care through voluntary. However, it was something that they never offered offered me and my family. Mm -hmm. um, in order to get him into that type of care, I had to relinquish guardianship. But do you, do you know the answer to that question? Like, why? why? This has nothing to do with Medicaid payments or it's, it's always money, right? I mean, why, why can't Kevin just go in there without her having to sign this statement of termination? Well, two things. When the legislature passed a statute back in 1997 that said, well, you can't condition provision of mental health treatment on uh, commitment. Mm -hmm. uh, nonetheless, it allowed that other statute to continue to exist, that uncared for mm -hmm. statute. It's still out there. And so when kids have such significant needs, yeah, and, and a judge makes a finding that the child has specialized needs, our law still permits the judge to vest custodial rights in the department. Mm -hmm. So that's still out there. Um, Permits, but it's weird that it has to. Uh, well, anyway, well, I don't think yeah. it has to. And with respect to the other thing that's been bandied about for many years, including back in 2002 when, DC, when CLS did some litigation against the department, 
um, was this issue of what they call Title IV-E funding, which is part of the Social Security Act. And they and, and it goes something like this, and I'm certainly no expert here, but that if you want uncapped dollars for the state from the federal government to treat these children, they have to have custodial rights placed uh -huh. in them. It however, about, yeah, okay. yes, yeah. however, my reading of the Social Security Act regulation says no. That's not what okay. it says. Well, just pause for a second. <laughs> yeah, I just don't want yeah. us to run out of time because of this. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, at some point, you had to say something to your son about this, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. It was the worst day of my life. What I, did you say? I sat in a room. It was me, him. Um, and he's how, he's how old at this point? Right now, he's actually no. going to turn 16 on Saturday. So, so when he, this happened, though, he was? He was probably, I want to say, 11 or 12. Yeah. Um, he was at the Children's Center of Hampton. He had been there already probably a good year. Um, and we sat in a room with his therapist, myself, and I believe a DCF, DCF representative was there, if I'm not mistaken. It, it's a vision that I, I don't necessarily want to go back to. But he um, was sitting with me on a, on a love seat, and I was rubbing and stroking his back. And I said, you know, Kevin, what's what's the one rule for you to come home? And he said, Ma, I got to be safe. And I said, well, y you're still working on that, right? And he said, yeah, 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 I am, Mom, but I'm going to do better. And I said, well, before coming home, Kevin, let's just make sure you can really be safe because, mm -hmm. you know, I have Mackenzie at home, I have Rebecca at home, and I just need you to be safe. And so, unfortunately, Kevin, you can't come home right now. And I just wept well, and just uncontrollably wept. But what was really happening was he was about to enter a part of his life and a part of the system where you really didn't have decision-making power. Correct. And this is a child who also has learning disabilities. He is borderline intellectually disabled. He relies on me. Mm -hmm. um, he feels only comfortable with me. Um, so to then give up decision-making medically as well as psychiatrically um, is very difficult. Um, I was at the one point that, you know, the hospital where he was inpatient called me because he had developed strep while being inpatient on a mental health unit and they could not get clearance to give him Tylenol. Hmm. And I couldn't even and over the phone get, give authorization yeah. for Kevin to get Tylenol right. while he had strep. Right. You didn't have I the had, power. Right. No, I didn't have the power. So, I had to call the DCF hotline <laughs> to get somebody to call somebody at the hospital to give him authorization to get a Tylenol. And that is heartbreaking for a parent to have to go through that process. Oh, I would imagine. So I want to make sure we get, uh, sure. there's so much ground to cover here. Maureen uh, O'Neill uh, Davis, we haven't heard from you yet. Uh, tell us your story. Um, thanks for having me today, Colin. So um, my husband and I uh, lived in Florida in 2005, and his sister was killed. Um, and shortly following that situation, which was domestic violence in nature, we took in and adopted her two children who had witnessed that crime. Um, over the next couple of years, we opted to move to Connecticut, where I'm from, and we had made that decision to get our son some medical care, but we ultimately felt that being in New England, where the medical and mental health services are greater than some other states, that whatever would develop with our daughters that we would be able to meet those needs. Um, within a short period of time, we began to see a lot of emotional uh, and behavioral challenges with our youngest daughter. We did reach out to the Department of Social Services. We reached out to um, independent mental health providers. We 
talked to child care providers who had a greater understanding maybe of, of certain behaviors, and we really tried to figure out how to best meet her needs. We couldn't even keep a babysitter because um, her behaviors and, and how she presented became so challenging for all of us, including babysitters, that we were never able to even you know, go out to dinner for several years. Um, fast forward, we, we relocated from one town to another. We, we live in Torrington now. And as soon as we got to Torrington, we enrolled both of our girls at Charlotte Hungerford Youth and Families. And it was there that the earlier um, diagnosis of adjustment disorder that our youngest daughter had been diagnosed with before the age of three transitioned into reactive attachment disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder. And that was the beginning of a very long path with trying to meet her needs. A couple years after that, we had um, uh, services through Wellspring, which was a uh, service that understands reactive attachment disorder very well. And it was a clinician there that directed us to the Department of Children and Families to access voluntary services as a means to get our daughter into recommended residential treatment. So just to be clear... So this is this thing that we're talking about. You have a clinician recommending a certain kind of treatment. To get that treatment, you have to relinquish custody of your child. My statement at that point to the clinician was, we we have private insurance. Our daughter also has Medicaid benefit as having been adopted through a state system. Why can't we just go through the admission process? And I was told that due to her age and due to the way the state functions, residential treatment would not be available to us unless we went through voluntary services. Um, Juliana, um, you've been listening to all this, and these are stories that, that you know anyway, but um, uh, these uh, two parents both n- seem to understand at least what was happening, had an opportunity uh, to, to go through that. Does everybody, did everybody that you talked to, all the Connecticut parents you talked to, understand what it was they were signing, what it was they were doing in order to get the kind of treatment they were trying to get? No. Uh, perhaps the understanding was uh, at best superficial. I don't think at the depths uh, did they understand that this would mean that they would no longer be able to make medical decisions or uh, educational decisions for their child. I think many of these parents in crisis are doing whatever they can to stabilize their child. And I don't know if anybody out there listening has been in that type of crisis, but, um, you know, you're just trying to survive. So um, perhaps some parents understand um, they're a little more well-versed, but I do think that there are parents out there who uh, may be reading the documents. And oftentimes, you know— well-intentioned, I'll say, well-intentioned medical professionals, attorneys, uh, social workers, and members of, of of the Department of Children and Families have sort of made light of this uncared for due to specialized needs petition, that it's neglect, but it's not really neglect. So uh, these parents in desperation are uh, not necessarily understanding what they're signing up for. Um, Maureen, because you also co-founded this network, I mean, do you have any sense of how pervasive this is, how often this happens? Does it happen 10 times a year? Does it happen 100 times a year? I mean, we don't really know, do we? So according to the Department of Justice and um, the work that Lisa Chetical did in preparation for an article in 2016 on some of our parents, um, it looks like it happens about three times a week in the state of Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Uh, nationally, the numbers vary, and it depends on on how each state functions 
um, in terms of child welfare, um, developmental services, social services, and who actually has the um, agency responsibility to step in and provide support or aid to families who are seeking higher-level care for these specialized brain development needs or autism with uh, co-occurring mental health needs or, or serious trauma histories. So just so we're clear, three times a week on average in Connecticut, it looks like, um, parents are, in order to get a level of treatment or a kind of treatment that their child needs, parents are quote-unquote, voluntarily surrendering their custodial rights. So like Susan, they couldn't even authorize a Tylenol to a kid with a fever. That's correct. So some of those um, neglect petitions citing uncared for due to specialized needs end up being a plea agreement. So some of these children, um, and I can speak from the standpoint of children diagnosed with reactive attachment disorder with severe symptoms, um, those children tend to spin stories and try to play the victim in a lot of situations to gain attention um, and for a lot of other reasons as well. They're, they're constantly engaged in their fight-flight-freeze response. They operate from a position of, of sadness, felt fear, and shame at all times. So they often talk and spin stories about people. So many of our families end up being brought to the attention of the department by way of a neglect um, allegation as well. And once the mental health needs of the child have been fully vetted through an investigative process and through an extended um, uh, investigation, if you will, of the family and, and highly scrutinized, some of those families are permitted to plea down to an uncared for due to specialized needs opposed to the simple neglect, uncared, you know, neglect petition. All right, so we're going to take a break right here because we're we got one more segment to go. All we got everybody here, everybody's still here, everybody's staying here. Uh, I'll just take this opportunity to uh, make a special thanks to our senior producer Betsy Kaplan. This is uh, uh, something that she came to me with and said, "I think we we really have to do this show." When she uses that tone of voice, I always say yes because she's right, uh, and she was. So thanks to Betsy Kaplan, uh, thanks to Wolfie for running the board today. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back with everybody. All right, we've got at least 30 minutes of stuff we need to cover, and we've got 10 minutes to do it in, so that's a problem. So um, uh, I'm not going to even resummarize what the show is about. I think you hopefully you've been listening with rapt attention so far. Um, Juliana, before we do run out of time, uh, Juliana Schatz-Preston, uh, one thing that you did do, good journalist that you are, is ask, well, who's doing this better? Who's setting up a system where parents who have the utmost concern for their children and want to get help for those children do not wind up surrendering? custodial rights with the language that almost makes it sound like they were bad parents. Has anybody figured out how to avoid doing this? I'm so glad you asked, Colin. Um, I think that it's essential uh, to this story. One thing I didn't see across the country was just a highlighting of how do we fix it. Um, let's We all agree that there's something wrong. Let's fix it. And I do think that um, the new commissioner has a tremendous opportunity to seize at this point. Um, a way to to go forward. And one person that I spoke to was Liz Manley. Um, she was the former assistant commissioner for the New Jersey Commission's uh, New Jersey's Children's System of Care um, and and their version of of DCF. And what they decided to do was create a separate um, entity 
that uh, essentially w- removed the child protection services element out of the equation. And it was uh, called the Children's Behavioral Initiative. And it, it focused entirely on mental health so that, let's say, you know, in I, in theory, that's what DCF does now, right? They have voluntary services and then they have the child protection side. Unfortunately, they're they're far too intertwined, in my my opinion, still. But in New Jersey, what they did was they were able to extract the, the behavioral health element and component to be able to focus on those families without the same social workers that were dealing with child abuse and neglect cases, um, et cetera. And and really, um, it, it took a long time, took about 20 years in total. But one thing that was uh, very revealing to me uh, was that uh, Ms. Manley said that it wasn't the legislation um, or the bills or any of that that made the change. It was a fundamental change in culture, and they had to have the governor's uh, backing, really, to change these things. It, it really, because bills and legislation at the end of the day didn't do anything, because as we know in Connecticut, uh, several bills and legislation haven't done anything. Um, but what they were able to do in New Jersey was really fundamentally from the ground up change things, remove the child protection element out of it, and create a new and separate entity that dealt specifically with children's mental health. Yeah, I mean, that makes so much sense. The more that you guys talk. By the way, everybody in the studio was nodding when you were talking about this. They like, they like this idea. Um, I just, you know, I want to come back because I just feel like it's so easy to get this part lost. So, Susan, you know, I mean, you talked very much, uh, very caringly and very um, tellingly, I think, about just how hard this was for you to deal with in terms of Kevin and his feelings. Mm-hmm. What about your feelings? I mean, at a certain point, the way the language that goes along with this, the structure that goes along with this, it, it is, as uh, Juliana was just saying, maybe part of the culture of an agency that its main mission, mo- mostly what it does is protect kids from bad family situations, that, those kinds of things. That wasn't the case here. I don't know. When you went home when that was all over and you'd signed that thing and you'd been through that hearing, I don't know. What did you say to yourself? Because it must have really hurt. There's a language that's in there that makes it sound like you're the failure. You feel like a failure. Um, And I'll never, when I chose, I chose these children. These children were not just picked up off the street. Mm -hmm. Um, I chose Kevin, Rebecca, and Mackenzie. And when you have to stand up in front of a judge and they tell, and this is called a neglect petition, Mm -hmm. it is insulting, Beyond words insulting because since Kevin was in my home at the age of five, I've done nothing but advocate for him, get him the services in which were um, – I was directed to what I felt was best for him. Um, meanwhile, trying to support him in his needs and his older sister's needs because she's seeing this witness and she was afraid that she was he was going to disrupt the the home to the point where I would choose not to further the adoption or not to continue on. Um, and so she always was walking on eggshells thinking that someday mom's just going to choose to put her hands up in the air and say she is done. Mm-hmm. Um, but I firmly committed to those children when I signed my name on those adoption forms. I will follow it through. I would never give up on Kevin, no matter where Kevin is, what Kevin needs. I will be his mother till my dying day. Um, and he, and it's kind of funny because he does, you know, he knows that the only person right now in his world is his mother's got his back. Mm-hmm. Um, and he'll say that relentlessly. So um, I know that I'm doing my job from his perspective. Um, but it's, you know, 
when you feel that people are looking in and, and are in your home once a week, twice a week, and you know that you are a good parent, I mean, DCF thought that I was a good enough parent to put them in my home in the first place. Um, so to have them, you know, always intrusive in, on your family life is very, very difficult. Maureen, um, we're almost out of time. I, I don't know. If I could give you the power to change the system somehow, how would you change it? Well, certainly I would move the Children's Behavioral Health Delivery System of Care Administration out of DCF. Mm-hmm. Um, I would move it over to an agency or create an agency that looks more like how DEMAS functions in our state. Yeah. Um, I would also look to um, look at how we're, we're administering our Medicaid benefits, um, look at how we're licensing the residential treatment facilities, both state-operated and privately owned and operated in our state to allow Medicaid benefits to cover um, admission to those places. I would also look at how we are looking and administering special education benefits within the school systems. We're, we're putting a, an overwhelming burden on our school systems to pay for the emotional disturbance category response and accommodations under special education. And it's a, it's a great cost. Um, and we need to look at how we're meeting kids' needs early in an effective, respectful, and responsive way to ensure children have a, a lifespan of success and that their families can be there for them in every possible way, in a healthy way. Yeah, I'm going to just, we are, we're really essentially out of time. So I'm going to ask you to do something kind of unfair. I'm going to just go around the people in the room and say, if you had to give a letter grade to how the state of Connecticut is dealing with getting services to families like these families, children like these families, um, Pat, would you give them a passing grade? No. Okay. <laughs> you'd, you'd flunk them. Susan? Yep. I would give them a good solid D only <laughs> because I felt that they never denied services for me, but mm. the, the lack of the length that those services last yeah. and, the, and that they don't prepare you for when that does happen um, is an issue. All right. Maureen? F minus. F minus. All right. Uh, Julianne, I'm not going to have you give a grade because this is not a public radio thing. You know, we just don't do that. Uh, <laughs> so Julianne Schatz. I wasn't going to give one anyway. Yeah, I, didn't think, yeah, I kind of <laughs> guess you wouldn't do that. Julianne Schatz Preston has, been joining, Preston has been joining us from the Argo Studios in New York in studio with me, Beth Gaylor, attorney at Connecticut Legal Services, and two very brave mothers, Maureen O'Neill Davis and Susan Russell, in here to tell their stories. Thank you for listening. We will be back tomorrow.